Today our sermon, as you might have guessed, is going to be entitled Hearts Set on Zion. And so I'd like to invite you to turn with me now to Psalm 84, in which we will read of this beautiful truth. My prayer for us before we dive into the scripture of it is this. My prayer is that we would enjoy this sweet fellowship as we were just praying, this fellowship with God all the more deeply as we learn that we must have our hearts set on Zion, the holy place of God most high. Our text in Psalm 84 leads us to this same end goal. It leads us in longing for the courts of God so that we too may know the fullness of God's peace, even in this of strength. Now, the Psalm, Psalm 84, has often been called the Pearl of the Psalms. In fact, Charles Spurgeon was called it that many years ago. And he called it that because it has such a mild radiance about it. There's something so sublime. Like a pearl, it is simple in appearance, easy to understand even. Is so captivating and pleasing to the eye and to the mind and to the heart. And friends, when we learn to dwell upon the simple truth of God's goodness and His kindness toward us in Christ, despite our own sins we've been talking about all morning, our hearts cannot help but become warmed by His peace that surpasses all understanding and an awareness of His blessed happiness that transcends all of our circumstances. So without further ado, let's go ahead and read now from the Holy Word of God, forever faithful and true and given to us in love. Here in Psalm 84, we'll begin with verse 1. The psalmist cries out this, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose hearts are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baha, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God and dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Friends, this is the word of God read over us and I preached over us in this hour. Let's come before God in prayer. Father, again, we ask for your blessing upon this time, not just in our worship as we've sung and through the liturgy of, of adoring you and confessing our sins and knowing the thankfulness that comes from resting in the gospel. We now, O oh God, ask in supplication for you to bless this time, that you, O oh God, will be exalted, that our hearts and our minds will be together in love, that you, Lord Jesus, will be known and felt in this 
place by the Holy Spirit's power, speaking through me as your messenger, through your word written and now preached. We ask of God that this time would be a blessing to your people, that your truth would shine forth, and that your grace and your power will be effective in our lives as it ministers to our hearts that are so weary and burnt out and tired. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, this song truly is sublime, isn't it? There's so much peace about it. See, truly this pleasant, peaceful bliss attends this song, does it not? And the message of Psalm 84 proves for us this morning that God desires that desires for our joy to be met in him. We know this because he uses that word blessed three times. This word blessed is literally the same word for happy in the original Hebrew. We often translate this word from the Hebrew as blessed, and we see it here not just once, not just twice, but really three times in total. And I want this to be the basis of our sermon for this morning where we see these words, blessed, used over and over and over again. And as such, we'll have three points this morning, focusing on each of these times that the word blessed is used. We see it first in verse 4, where those who dwell in God's house are called blessed, or literally happy. We see it in verse 5, where those whose strength is in God are blessed, or indeed happy. And we see it in verse 12 again, that those who trust in God are happy. And this promise then of real blessedness or God-focused happiness is ours too when and only when we commune with God by faith in Christ Jesus. So let's go ahead and focus the first part of our sermon on this in verses 1 through 4. Here again we see that those who dwell in God's house are what? Happy. Verse 4 specifically tells us this. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Now notice, first of all, what it does not say. <laughs> it doesn't say, blessed are those who do great things, or blessed are those who rise to the top of the corporate ladder, or blessed are those who amass great wealth in this life, or even, blessed are those who work mightily for the Lord. Rather, the writers of this psalm say, blessed are those who dwell in God's house, who rest upon God's grace. See, in other words, those who are truly happy in this life are the ones who trust, who rest in the Lord God, who let their lives settle down into daily fellowship with Him by the Holy Spirit, who seek to build every degree of their lives in and upon his holy habitation. But how do we arrive at such a peaceful place when our lives are met by such strenuous circumstances, by death, even as many of us have talked about, by things that cause us to feel separated in our own hearts? How do we put this way when our lives are even rushed and hurried along in this anxiety-inducing culture? Well, friends, the psalm answers this question for us. We must learn to yearn and pine after God himself. 
Consider verses 1 through 2 again with me. They say this, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Friends, here we see a kind of holy love sickness for God on display. See, it's the same kind of verbiage that you might hear from your own spouse after you've been separated for some time. But there is something remarkably curious about this context here in our relationship with God, more than just a husband or wife. See, this psalm wasn't written by someone who hadn't worshipped God in a long time, or someone who had been away from the Temple Mount itself there in Israel. Rather, this psalm was written and sung by a group of people known as the Sons of Korah, which we see even in the introduction to this same psalm. This says even a psalm of the Sons of Korah. And that was in the original Hebrew. See, this psalm, again, was written by the Korahites. And they were very similar in of themselves to the sons of Asaph, the sons of Korah. See, like the sons of Asaph who wrote Psalm 50 through 83, those 34 psalms right there, the sons of Korah also wrote various psalms like this one here in 84, and even the next one in 85. The sons of Korah were what we might call the singer-songwriters of that day. But catch this. They were also doorkeepers. They were the custodians of Israel. They were the blue-collar workers in that land, so to speak. They were the ordinary people, those from the grassroots of Israel. They were ordinary citizens of Israel, but what made them distinct is that their worship was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit used them to inspire these same words that we now have read. Now, regarding the sons of Korah, there's a little bit of context here that would help us. See, in 1 Chronicles 26, we read of how the sons of Korah were sanctioned by Lot. As a side note, how would you like to have your job designated by you, or for you by the roll of dice? You know, hey, you get this job, you get this job. But that's actually what happened. The sons of Asaph got one job, and the sons of Korah got the other job. And the sons of Korah, in particular, were sanctioned to guard and take care of the colony, or the court, if you will, on the west side of Jerusalem. The others got the east side. Now, these were men of ordinary stature, again, the sons of Korah. They were tasked, however, with serving the Lord and his people primarily through their normal upkeep and watchful vigilance. They were guards. And they were there, set in place, to stand and watch and guard so that no evil would ever enter into the city gates of Israel, Jerusalem specifically. Now, in all honesty, their job was likely fairly boring. <laughs> For anyone who's ever had a day job, just standing mostly, whether it's retail or anything like that, you know how boring that is. <laughs> So they had plenty of time to watch the birds come in and go out. And they had plenty of time to watch the people come in and go out. They stood guard day in and day out. <clears throat> and passed the time by singing and playing on their ancient acoustic string instruments. Now by today's singers, they were pretty much the definition of starving artists. <clears throat> they were musicians who 
were just kind of getting by and fiddling on their guitars, if you will, throughout the day. But they serve the house of Israel. And more importantly, the God of Israel. And you know what? They loved it. They loved every minute of it. For though they merely stood at the city gates, they got to spend their days, every single day, peering into the divine mysteries of God there at the temple mount. They saw how God displayed his coming salvation for his people through the types and the shadows which all prefigured Christ yet to come. The only atonement for sin and Savior of his people. And as such, their hearts burned with a passion within them for God. Now, you and I are not all that unlike the sons of Korah. See, though our daily lives may seem mundane at times, admittedly, and perhaps even insignificant on this side of glory, the normal routines we go through, doing the dishes and taking out the trash or doing the laundry, things of that nature, we are yet those, by faith, who are peering into the mysteries of God in Christ as through a mirror dimly. But rather than seeing the temple, we have this given to us in the very world and especially the preached word as it's spoken over us every Sunday, and the sacraments of baptism and communion as signs and symbols of the covenant of grace applied to us and our children. See, through these things, the preached word and the sacraments, God is teaching us to long all the more day, all the more rather for that final day of fulfillment when we shall see our Savior's face and behold his power and his glory. But until then, we are those who look onward, much like the sons of Korah, with eyes of faith and hearts of expectant, longing, yearning, passion. For though we also are like exiles in this life, longing for a better country, and awaiting the return of our king, who will, on that very last subdue, the totality of this earth under his feet, we know that we are not exiles at the last. We are those who will truly inherit the better country at the last. And his blessed happiness attends us in every station of life along the way until we arrive at that final destination. We'll repent. And so Psalm 84 is not so much a song of a sense like we read later on in Psalms 120-134. Rather, it is a song of stations, if you See, Psalm 84 teaches us to actually be still and recognize that true joy in all circumstances comes from knowing the sweet fellowship of God even in the midst of mundanity and in the ordinary things of life. That fellowship is not just experienced during seasons that excite us when we see obvious growth and revival, when souls are saved, when churches like New Hope are planted, and even when politicians and elected officials bend the knee to Christ as king over all. No, the happiness of God can be and indeed is meant to be known when our hearts are simply drawn to worship. So here again, I see before us describe this kind of peaceful bliss for us here in verse 3. It says this, even the sparrow 
finds a home. And the swallow, a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Now this imagery again, friends, is so sublime. Speaking of the birds, right? Here in the midst of holy worship, with sacrifices being made unto the very God of heaven, the birds of this lower heaven, the air, are seen making their dwelling place, their own abode, at the altar of God, under the shadow of the Almighty. And yet both of these birds, the swallows and the sparrows alike, represent something so much more great for us than we may at first recognize. They represent for us God's providential care over us and even all things. Speaking of caring for things, for animals, uh, last week, right after we had that massive monsoon, that rainstorm that lasted almost all week, <laughs> I took my dog Baxter. He's getting big, by the way, since you guys last saw him. But I took him outside, and we saw this tiny little bird. It might have been a sparrow. I, I don't know if it works that well. <laughs> it, it was there, and it was in this huge tree, and it was just calling and calling and calling and calling, and it wouldn't stop. The ground all around us was soaked. The tree was just dripping water still from that massive rainstorm. But you know what? That bird was still alive. It may have been wet, <laughs> but it was still living. And it reminded me even a moment last week of the words of Jesus for us in Matthew 10, verse 29, which say this, are not two sparrows, these worthless things, right, sold for a penny. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And in Matthew 6, 26, he said, as well, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Friends, in ancient Israel, these sparrows that we read up here in the Gospel of Matthew, but even in Psalm 84, represented for those people the idea of Worthlessness. Worthlessness. See, young boys who were hungry for old-fashioned euros or lamb kafka or dates or raisins or falafel with hummus on the side, they would catch a couple of these sparrows in order to earn a quick buck and sell them in order to get some food. Yet here in Psalm 84, we see the essence of worthlessness juxtaposed with the most worthy Likewise, the swallows. The swallows that endlessly flit to and fro were indicative of not worthlessness, per se, but in that place and time, they were indicative of restlessness. And yet here, at the altar of God, the restless birds of the air find their rest in the God of heaven. And even the birds, then, that we might call worthlessness and restlessness by name, if even they find their worth and their rest in God, how much more shall people who are loved by God like you and me find our worth and our rest in God? How much more shall we who are graven on the nail-scarred hands of Christ our Savior find our worth and our rest in Him for all eternity? Friends, are your hearts toward this same Zion and the God of Zion. If so, I want you to hear this word of encouragement over you. 
As one of the Puritans once wrote, I love this, but he said, here on earth, I can have all the world, but there in heaven, think Zion, I shall have thee in Christ. Here is a life of longing and prayer, but there is assurance without suspicion, asking without refusal. Here are gross comforts, more burden than benefit, but there is joy without sorrow, comfort without suffering, love without inconstancy, and rest without weariness. As a believer in Christ, are you tapping into this same love of the Father over you day in and day out? Are you, by the mercies of God, presenting your own bodies, like those birds, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship? Well, this brings us then to our second use of the word blessed here in verse 5. It says this, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. We see a transition here now in terms of our vantage point. Whereas before, the first four verses considered those who were stationed at the gates of the city, here we now consider that happiness attends God's people even as they travel throughout this life. Speaking of traveling in this season... I can personally relate very well with verse 5 and following. I've traveled a lot in the past year, and as many of you know, if not all of you know, I almost moved across the state just a few short months ago. I was making plans for the better part of nine whole months to move out to Waynesburg, Virginia, to go plant a church with the Virginia Presbytery of the ARP, the same group of people, the same presbytery, which New Look is now joining ourselves to shortly. But see, the Lord had other, better, plans for me. In his good providence, in his kindness, he decided and made it very obvious that I was meant to stay here in Westford. As many of you, as you're even smiling, were praying for so long that I would. Thank you for bearing with me, by the way. <laughs> and he did this in order that I may shepherd the people here in Westford in a place that I have loved for the last 20 years now literally down to the date when my family and I moved here the first week of July back in 2003. And the Lord has made it obvious to me that this is where he has me. However, I know that I'm not the only one in this room who has faced uncertainty and question after question after question over this past year. What are you doing, Lord? Where are you? Those kinds of questions. But see, this uncertainty is what our Lord uses to build our faith in Him and not the people or things around us. Such was the case for ancient Israel. See, beyond even their own uncertainty, even in the midst of their uncertainty, the people of Israel knew that the valleys that they passed through were always purposed for their eternal good and God's glory. This is why we read in verse 6 of the Valley of Baca. It's a fun Hebrew word to say, by the way. You try sometimes. It's in the back of the The Valley of Baca comes from the Hebrew noun, Bahim. Bahim meaning weepers. Let that sit for a moment. The Valley of Weeping? Wait a second, this is a nice, happy song. What's going on right now? See, Judges 2, 1 through 5, tells us the context of what was going on. Why this valley of Baca is brought up all of a sudden in otherwise very happy psalm. Judges 2 illustrates for us 
that this valley of weeping meant something very significant for the people of Israel. It was a thorn in their side. See, Judges 2 tells us the following. Now the angel of the Lord, very likely Jesus, Christophany, appears of Christ in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bahim, and he said, I brought you up. In other words, Jesus, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. In other words, destroy all the evil places. Do not even worship the false gods. But Jesus continues on here, the angel of the Lord. You have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Now as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. Bahim. And so they called the name of that place Bahim. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now for the people of Israel back then in King David's day, around the time that the psalm was being written, the valley of Baca continued to represent a thorn in the entire nation's side. It reminded them of their own rebellion against God and how God would let that remain as a sign of their own disobedience and remind of them of their disgrace toward them. But see, the word about him has this alternative meaning in Hebrew. It has this idea of thorn or a thorn bush. And even as it was used back then, specifically a mulberry bush, right? Now, if you're a lover of blackberries and raspberries and other kinds of mulberry bushes like me, you know the fruit of these bushes is so sweet and sour to the taste at the same time. We often use even big wine, right? Things of that nature. Sweet and sour, bitter, and it's so nice. But what you might not know is that these berries, these mulberry bushes, tend to grow best in arid environments. And so this is a picture that the psalmist is painting for us here. See, as we go through the dry spells in life, sometimes one after another, after another, after yet another, God tends to us most noticeably in our hardships and in our trials. The times when we feel like those thorn bushes trying to grow in the middle of the desert. And so he doesn't just mend our lives, though. When his rainwaters of grace come down upon us, he causes us to bear fruit to the praise of his glorious grace. See, we as God's people are not blind to the tribulations that we face, though. You've heard it said before that ignorance is bliss, perhaps. But friends, the happiness of God that meets us in our own desert times is indeed blissful, but it is not ignorant. Rather, the blessed happiness of God is what transforms our minds to learn to think his own thoughts after him. It is his kindness that leads us simultaneously into deeper, mature repentance and yet childlike faith. And so blessed happiness attends the ones who find their strength in God's love all the more, even as our perceived control over life's circumstances dissipates. Now, as those who have traveled this road to Zion, as Christians, where have you seen God at work over the years? 
to those of you who feel, perhaps even in this moment, worthless and disparaged or out of place right now, how is the Spirit of God consoling your own heart in this hour? To those who feel restless, maybe questioning where God is leading you, asking, what are you doing, Lord, in the midst of all of this that I'm facing? How is God yet pouring His peace into your own heart? Certainly you and I are not promised earthly riches or wealth or prosperity, but we as His beloved children are promised the richness of the Spirit's presence, the wealth of knowing Christ in all things, and the eternal inheritance that is ours in the Lord. As Jesus told us, the meek shall inherit the earth. Zion, friends, is our inheritance. This earth, for those who are in Christ, will one day be ours. This is what makes us glad in every station. And this is what transforms each and every dry, desert place of weakness into life-giving pools of water and springs of God's strength. A late, late pastor, Eugene Peterson, who wrote, his own translation of the Bible, and it's a message. Once paraphrased this as follows, how blessed are all those in whom you live, whose lives become roads that you travel. They wind through lonesome valleys, come upon brooks, discover cool springs, and pools brimming with rain. God traveled. These roads curve up the mountains. At the last, Zion, God in full view. A beautiful picture. But please catch this nuance. The believing Jews of that day who even wrote this psalm knew that they were not simply those who go through the valley of Akkad, through the valley of weeping, but those who go up from it with the purpose of arriving before Akkad and Zion. In other words, the valley itself is not and never will be our final destination for those who are in Christ. For as much as suffering is indeed a tutor to our souls, teacher, Christianity does not teach that suffering is the end-all, be-all in life, much like the worldly religions of this day, like Buddhism and others. Rather, Zion is our eternal home. And our Heavenly Father's smile, secured for us by Jesus the Son, rests upon us all the way. This is why Psalm 84, verses 8 through 9, Offer to us this prayer from the heart of faith. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. See, friends, these verses proclaim the gospel message to us well in advance. The shield of Israel, the anointed one, is Jesus himself. He is the one who secures for us our safety and our defense, and truly every good gift from the Father of lights. So the heart's cry here in Psalm 84, these last few verses, is for the Father to look upon the Son of righteousness divine every time that he looks at us. And the Gospel tells us this much, but the Father not only does this for us, he delights in smiling over us. Psalm 84 then previews the doctrine of our union with Christ. We read of this union with Christ in 1 Corinthians 3, which tells us this, All things are yours, you believe, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. 
So just as Christ the Son belongs to the Father, you as a believer in Christ belong to both Christ and the Father. You are in union with Jesus. This has a profound impact on how we live our lives on a daily basis. To see Jesus is to see the capital H happiness of God. To know and understand that your worth is not in your work or your relationships or your socioeconomic status, but rather is fixed for all eternity in the person of Jesus, that is the most liberating truth in the whole world. And so these delights are what we call covenantal blessings. These same covenantal blessings that we just read of earlier in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And this brings us to our third and final use now of the word happy that we see in verse 12. Verse 12 says this once more, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now until this point, we have already seen two major juxtapositions in our psalm. First, the idea of worthlessness and restlessness juxtaposed with the worthy one and the rest, the God who gives us rest, rather. And similarly, the valley of Akkad juxtaposed with the highway's design as well. But here in verse 10 through 12, we see and we're invited, really, to consider that a single day in the courts of our Lord is better than a thousand elsewhere. Now, I'm convinced that this use of the number 1,000 is not at all unlike the other apocalyptic literature we see throughout Scripture. We see it especially in the book of Daniel, chapter 7 and following, and Zechariah chapter 14, and all throughout the entire book of Revelation, this apocalyptic literature, the same apocalypse that we read of last week in Revelation 4, where we see figures and hyperboles and exaggerations of things conveying a more simple message to us for our mind's eye. And so what does it say? It says that a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Not a literal one thousand, but just any day elsewhere. <laughs> for all eternity. One single day in God's house. And so eternity then is in view before us. Matters of heaven and hell alike are before us. Matters of blessing and judgment are before us. All with the emphasis on the heavenly courtroom of God, as again we saw last week in Revelation 4. See, for those who are in Christ, the bliss of his presence far exceeds even a thousand days spent in the tents of wickedness. Or more literally, hell itself. And although this may be an argument from silence, the judgment of the wicked here then is implied in verse 10. A thousand days outside of God's presence, right? See, while joy and eternal bliss await us, for all those who continue in their sin and do not trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, their end is outside of those gates. It is eternity outside of God's joy and favor and communion with Him. They will never taste and see and know that God is good in a saving way. See, the unsaved ones may build tents for themselves even here in this life and take refuge in worldly passions and a flood of debauchery, but their tents of idol worship will one day prove at the last to not stand. But, in direct contrast, we, as those who have been called out of this, are those who, whose lives are built on nothing less in Christ, the cornerstone. Each one of us is a living stone, members of Jesus' body, fashioned after his own likeness. 
1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, describes the eschatological end of our condition in this way. I'll read just the first part of this for you. But it says this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This then, friends, is our forever inheritance in Christ the Rock. And as we learn to trust all the more in this God of sheer mercy and love, we will come to know the brilliance of his sun-like countenance and the unassailability of his shield-like protection. So as a final point of application, you and I are invited to, and you must, live as blessings before others. And we only do this by first being filled with the delight of God, and then secondarily showcasing His delight in how we live before others. This gospel-informed happiness isn't fake or artificial, but sometimes it does look a little uncomfortable or even appear awkward to others. Others who do not yet know Christ may at first pass it off, this spiritual Christ-centered happiness, as simply being happy-go-lucky in spirit, or even contrived at worst. But when they ask you, why are you so happy? Let God's praise be so entrenched in your own soul that your witness to His grace during those spiritual gospel conversations cannot help but spill out and spill over. In this way, friends, our evangelism here at New Hope, even as we change and see the church morph over the next few months and years even, our evangelism and service in Christ's name will shine all the way if we are rooted in this true eternal happiness. See, it's when our hearts are set on the goodness of God in Christ that we will know this final truth that we read up here in verse 11. That no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That reminds me of the words of Romans 8 28, which tells us this as well. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so, as we conclude, do you belong to Christ? Do you know the smile of God over you? Do you know his eternal blessedness? over you. And so I want to encourage you to rest in the love of the Father as you go home today and as you prepare for your work, both materially speaking and spiritually speaking throughout this week. And if you don't yet know this Redeemer as your own, I'd love nothing less than to talk to you about who He is and the true unbridled happiness that He alone provides us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, we thank you that your name truly is holy. And we thank you, O Lord, that you have called us to be a people who are holy, set apart for your eternal purpose in Christ. And 
And so, Lord Jesus, we, we thank you. We praise you. We cannot help but pour out our hearts and our souls before you now as we arrive once more at this place of worship through song. So we pray all this in Jesus' holy name.